a reading from the Epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the gospel of Christ, the word of God. (laughs) We've been looking at Paul's epistle, his letter to the church in Ephesus. And we've been looking at it actually for quite a long time in a couple of different segments. And and recently, we, as we come nearer to the end of, of the book, we have been um, digging down in this uh, area of relationships, of community. One of the things that we can say as we come to the message of Paul to us, the gospel through the letter of Ephesians, is that Paul is articulating a kind of an alternative reality for us. He is pointing us, helping us to see that things don't have to be the way that they are, that there is a reality that is behind our kind of common set of perceptions and assumptions about life and about relationship, about family, about marriage, about work, about politics. We live often between those two realities that we more commonly call the world and the kingdom. One of the things I like to do is I like to to pick certain realities, whether in history or particularly in scripture, and, and to point to them and to identify them as that's a time when the world changed forever. One of those Times is when Jesus, who had spent a lot of time with his disciples, with his friends, one day in his conversation said to these words to them, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. The world changed forever that day. When the son of God said to human beings, I don't call you servants. That's not how I relate to you anymore. I relate to you as a friend. And the focus of my life and my mission and my friendship with you is to share with you what's been shared intimately with me. I want you to be on my team. I want you to be in my group. I want you to be in my community. I want you to share in a way that's beyond your imagination with the deep, intimate things of God that God is revealing to the world through me 
but I'm going to now upgrade your role in this. I'm going to include you in the meeting before the meeting. I'm going to include you on the leadership retreat. I'm going to include you in the five-year plan. I'm going to involve you and urge your participation and urge and encourage your contribution in the center of what God is doing in the world. And this is kind of what is going on in this latter passage around relationships, around Phil has been digging deep with us over the last few weeks on marriage and on family, parents, and children. And he's been articulating how there is a kind of a revolutionary, countercultural way of thinking about Paul's message on these important relationships. And today, Paul continues to talk about a really, really important set of relationships, that relationship between boss and employee, between slave and master, between servant and master. I'm going to read the passage that is uh, printed for you. It's the same passage that Dennis um, read to us, although it's in Eugene Peterson's version of the message. I want you to listen to those, this passage as it's read, just audibly in the room today. And I want you to listen for the radical alternative reality that's present in the articulation of Ephesians. You'll be thinking about your relationship with others, but primarily thinking about the culture and the work, professional world, thinking about your role as a worker or as a leader in work. Maybe even thinking about the political world that we live in and in terms of the cadence. Servants, respectfully obey your earthly masters, but always with an eye for obeying the real master, Christ. Don't just do what you have to do to get by, but work heartily or work fully as Christ's servants, doing what God wants you to do. And work with a smile on your face, always keeping in mind, so that matter, no matter what happens to be, who, no, matter who, sorry, no matter who happens to be giving the orders, you're really serving God. Good work will get you good pay from the master, regardless of whether you're a slave or free. Masters, it's the same with you. No abuse, please and no threats. You and your servants are both under the same master in heaven. He makes no distinction between you and them. Paul is articulating the change that came a reality in the life and the mission of Jesus. He's fleshing it out in the context of work and household relationships. And you can listen to that in terms of the ancient word to slaves and slave owners, which was part of Paul's culture. Or you can listen to that in the contemporary context of leaders in business or leaders in work and those who follow them or those who work for them. Regardless of what level of history and reality you choose to, to come to this text with, something several things have drastically changed. There's a strong, strong 
emphasis on the core of motivation. You're working for God. You're not working for yourself. And you're not really working for your earthly master. You are working for God. Secondly, your motivation has to come from a deeper place. It's not just about your education. It's not just about the expectations that were carved out for you on your job description. It's not just about your little role in the organization or in the community. Motivation comes from somewhere deeper. Paul doesn't really necessarily explicate it in detail, but, but what he's saying is your work is rooted in your worship. It reminds us of his teaching in the book of Romans that we present ourselves as a living sacrifice, meaning everything in our lives is an expression of our love for God. Not just on the Lord's day, but each and every day. There's a new level of mutual, mutuality and respect that, that, is, that is evoked. The old hierarchical world of boss and slave, slave owner and slave, boss and employee, that world, which we most of us assume is the real world, that world is being chipped away as a new relational reality is being encouraged. And you can see glimmers of it in the teaching about parents and children and about husband and wife. You can see glimmers that this new reality of friendship at the core, of equality at the core, of mutuality and profound respect at the core as being revealed. And it goes back to Jesus saying to his disciples, you're not my servants anymore. You have to change your mind about who you are and who I am. You're my friend. And together, we are friends of God. We are sons and daughters of the King. Paul is taking a serious, serious swing. And you know, as we come to the end of this section, one of the things I'd like to do this morning is, is to work a little bit on where this comes from and what this is for. What's the purpose beyond Paul's radical teaching on relationships in the home, in the marriage, in the workplace, in the culture? What's, what's he, he, he trying to get at? And so I did a little bit of digging, and I went back to the beginning of Ephesians 5, where it says this in verse 1, "'Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering of sacrifice to God.'" One of the things that you find out about the Apostle Paul is that just about everything that he says, just about everything, if not everything that he teaches, can be connected back directly to the life and the ministry of Jesus. A lot of times people make a false decision in the New Testament between the Gospels and the mission and the ministry of Jesus and the teaching of Paul and the Apostles, Peter and John and the others. But Paul, you can never get very far away from Jesus' life, and particularly his death, and his sacrificial example, and reality, and his resurrection. And he's doing it again here. 
following God's example, he says. As dearly loved children, which is really important. You can't follow God's example unless you know that you're loved. And walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. And if you look back, marriage, husband and wife. If you look back, parents and children. If you look deeper and reflect and contemplate on this passage about slaves and slave owners, it's love that begins to emerge in the teaching. It's love and mutual respect and care and appreciation that kind of comes together and comes through. And, and so, so let me take you through a little bit of the rootedness of this teaching for Paul. Why is it that Paul can so easily, it seems, suggest that there's an alternative reality to the way people in their roles relate to one another? Why can he say, as Eugene Peterson um, interprets or uh, translates, you and your servants are both under the same master in heaven. He makes no distinction between you and them. He makes no distinction between you and them. He's talking to leaders. He's talking to bosses. He's talking to people who are responsible for the overall direction and success and fruitfulness of the community, of the business, of the group. That is a radical saying. It was a radical saying in that time, and I think you'll admit it's a radical saying in our time, although there are glimmers of hopefulness in our culture. There are the development of teams, the encouragement of employees to participate and to share with the leadership of their companies and their organizations. Where does Paul get this from? He gets this from the character of God because he teaches follow God's example. One of the things that's being recovered in the life of the church these days is the Trinity, is the reality of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. It's been something that unfortunately in many of our traditions have been sort of left apart. It's a, it's a mystery. It's not an easy thing to explain rationally. And yet when you go into the scriptures and you go into the, the teachings of the church, you realize that the unique way of thinking about God is three persons in one God. Here's a quote from one person, one Christian thinker, at the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life. The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, defer to one another in a constant movement of overture and acceptance. Each person envelops and encircles the others. What the doctrine of the Trinity is telling us, someone else writes, is that God is fundamentally a relational being. The Father and the Son and the Spirit live in conversation, in a fellowship of free-flowing togetherness and sharing and delight. A great dance of shared life that is full and rich and passionate, creative, good, and beautiful. So when Paul says to his people, live like God. Root your lives in God. Root your relationships in God. What he's thinking about is how the Father and the Son live and work and lead together. The traditional teaching of the church, by the way, says that there's no hierarchy of power between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Each person in the Trinity has a uniqueness of character and a uniqueness of role 
But God is God when those three persons work wonderfully and beautifully together. Deep respect. Deep cooperation. Deep understanding of each other's person. And that's, as creative beings, that's where our deep desire for community comes from. That's why we are so utterly communal. That's why people who are in marriages together for life and get divorced get married again, and some get married again and again and again. That's why the deep longing for friendship in our culture. That's why the desire for team. That's why the increasing desire in the culture to have people participate, to listen to one another's perspectives. That's why Paul can say to leaders in business and in household affairs and their participants, that's why he can say that God makes no distinction because God, as the Father, Son, and the Spirit, makes no distinction in terms of hierarchy and power. Instead, it's a picture of self-giving community. It's a picture of humility. Jesus, of course, is the one who really gives Paul his energy on thinking about this radical reorientation of relationships at work and at home. It's Jesus who Paul describes later like this, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. The king becomes a servant. And the world is changed forever. When the king becomes the servant king. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus gets his rightful place as the Lord of the universe and the hope of the world, but he does it by giving himself by his death on the cross. And so the shape of leadership in participation, in community, in marriage, in family, in work, the shape of that leadership is the shape of the cross. That's what Paul's saying when he says, follow in your daily practices, follow the way of God. It's not just a saying that he's throwing out there. He actually understands that the world has changed. He understands that we're actually not just waiting for the world to change. The world has changed. We are no longer servants of Jesus. We are Jesus' friends. And if you can only imagine what that would have meant to those disciples who had been calling Jesus their teacher, if if you could only imagine culturally what it meant that the rabbi said, no, you're my friends now. Everything that I know, you're going to know. You're sharing in the success of this project. You're participating fully We can also go with Paul to his teaching on the work of the Holy Spirit. We can recognize that whether it's the gifts of the Spirit, which are aimed at the unity and a beautiful coalescence 
of function in the community, for the sake of the community. Each person has something unique, but the goal is the unity and the flourishing of the community. We can think about the description that Luke makes in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and the disciples at Pentecost and the description of those home churches, the description of that deep community together, the description of that sort of church life beyond the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. These are people from different classes. These are people, some who had a lot of money. These are people, some who didn't have very much money at all. These are people who were politically connected. These are people who were not politically connected. These are people who were radically drawn into community. And these relationships are rooted in God's being. They're rooted in God's character. They're rooted in God's love. They're rooted in the common goals of loving and delighting and worshiping God in the world. You've got to admit that when an ancient text comes to do its work in our lives in this culture and actually says something that looks like it could happen in real life, in real time, you've got to admit there's something attractive to that. You've got to admit that the world changed when Jesus said, you're not my slaves anymore. You're my close friends. You've got to admit that that has tremendous potential to overcome the dangers and the domination of a hierarchical world. You just have to admit there's something beautiful emerging in Paul's teaching through the way of Jesus. Some of you know this about my wife Karen and I, but we have become obsessed with Cuba. It actually started at Knox Church. We used to be obsessed with downhill skiing until six years ago I broke my arm and all of a sudden fell out of my obsession with downhill skiing as a winter vacation. And so took a break, we thought, for a year. But we've now been going to Cuba. It's not only a good financial deal, it's got dial-in weather and some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. But over the years, we've come to really fall in love with the Cuban people. It's actually now the number one reason we go, both in the general sense of just being fascinated by the history of Cuba and their journey and their story, and also having a door opened to us through to a real family and a real community in the real Cuba. We can now say that after the last five or six years, some of our best friends in the world are Cubans. We love them, we pray for them, we seek to help them in their goals and their projects and their desires. We become observers of Cuban culture even as we spend some of our time on the resort. We spend more of our time in the real Cuba than most people who vacation in these places. But one of the things that I've noticed about Cuban, and this isn't a political comment on communism or their history or whatever, but here's a few things that I've observed. People with extraordinary education, and most Cubans are educated, 
Most Cubans, I think you know, are literate. That was a success of whatever their revolution. But there's very little distinction in terms of pay between educated professionals and more common workers. Cubans have one of the highest per capita number of medical professionals, doctors, of any country in the world. But doctors aren't paid any more than most workers in any place. So there's this equality that exists in Cuban life. Not only is there an equality, there's a kind of a, a fraternity that exists. So if you sit with your coffee, your, your espresso in the lobby of a resort, one of the things on a shift change, which is you've got to get up around 7 o'clock, and then you notice the shift change, what you'll notice is that people who, because you've been to this place for several years, you know is the boss, greeting employees with a little hug and a little Caribbean kiss. You also notice that if you get involved with a group of Cubans on a little trip, you'll, you'll notice it's, it's actually astounding how the team that's leading your group speaks so well of one another. We'll talk openly about the talent and about the ability and about the skill of other people on their team in front of a group of strangers. You also notice that Cubans often whistle while they work. It's, it's actually amazing. It's, 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 it's very moving to me. And it's even more moving now that I've become reacquainted with this text in, in, in Ephesians that kind of reminds us of the radical equality, the radical joyful equality and the deep respect that Jesus came to make possible among his friends. The reason that this is happening for Paul, the reason that this alternative community of friendship exists, though, it exists for the sake of the world and for the sake of the kingdom. That alternative community called the church, who parent well and who marry deeply, and who work joyfully and respectfully and skillfully as their worship. That community exists to help the world see that the world does not have to stay addicted to its own best understanding of how to live and how to marry and how to work. We are a sign of the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the world. That's why we're gathered here together today, to, in order to be reminded of our calling in the world. There's a few places that say that. We are the body of Christ, for instance. We are the living exhibition of life with Jesus in the world. That's who we are. We're not at our core a voluntary association. That's what the culture calls us. But we are the body of Christ, called to live in that body in a different way. Jesus prayed also that, that something in our unity, something in our mutual respect, something in our skillful working together, he prayed from the depth of his life and being that we would experience that unity, that we would be one why? So that the world, through our unique unity, would recognize that God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Peter writes to his people passionately, live such good lives among the pagan culture 
that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. They may see your alternate reality. And what will they do with that? They'll glorify God on the day that he visits. In other words, your good lives will point people to the reality of God. We're not talking about work in order to make, give an advantage to Christians in the workplace. We're not talking about marriage in order to somehow miraculously restore the divorce rate, although that would be an amazing thing. We're not talking about life between parents and families in order to develop communities of tiger parents and super kids. We're talking about living away in community because Paul says to us, this is living God's way. And if living God's way happens to be a wonderful alternative to the way of the culture, whether it's in marriage or in family or profoundly in the workplace, then so be it. And God be glorified in this change. John Stott, the venerated Anglican evangelical biblical scholar and pastor, he talks about the book of Ephesians and particularly this section of it by using the term God's new society. He argues that what is going on here is that Paul is articulating this vision of life according to the heart and the character and the nature of God. He's not just coming up with a new political way, although it is the politics of the cross. You know, one of the reasons, let me conclude here and tie this in. One of the reasons we're having Christine Pohl come here because we believe that the church is God's new society. We believe that Knox Church is an expression of God's new society. And we also realize very practically that the challenge of unity, the challenge of a deeper community is something that's very, very real for us. If you just think about it for a second, you think about the challenges of decision-making that are coming our way in the next weeks and months and years. You think about the challenge of a diverse group of people trying to find its way deeply onto the same page with what the Spirit of God is calling our church to be and to do and where to go. You think about the diversity of people that we are welcoming each and every day into our community. People from all over the world. You think of all of the stresses of being called to develop a kind of community like our community. Multicultural, from different denominational backgrounds, from rural places coming to school, students, young families, couples, young professionals, older people, experienced people, all coming together to be the body of Jesus Christ. And what we want to say off of Paul's teaching is this isn't just some kind of pretend game we're doing. This is something we're called to because we are the body of Christ in this place. And so we believe that God has led us to, quite frankly, one of, if not the most gifted spokesman in the North American church on what it means to live deeply in community. 
as our friend Rob Dean has called Christine Poole's book, Making Room, a modern-day theological classic. And so I encourage you, as the community of Knox Church, maybe you've never come to an activity at Knox or to a day or a teaching at Knox outside of Sunday morning or Sunday evening, I encourage you, as a response to this call to live God's way in your community, to live God's way in your relationships, to live God's way in your work. I encourage you to come on that time together, a day of worship, a day of friendship, a day of profound teaching, we believe, that the Spirit of God has put together for all of us. Welcome to God's new society. No one ever said it was going to be easy. The person who made it possible is a person who had a difficult life that ended on the cross. But his way, his sacrificial way, is the way of God in the world. It's the way of God for each and every one of us and all of us. You know, it's amazing to me that in leadership studies, a few decades ago, a school of thinking about leadership emerged called servant leadership. It was established by a man named Robert Greenleaf, who thought very deeply about what it meant to be a leader in the real world. And one of the things he realized is that if you turned leader upside down and started to lead from the posture of servant, things could change. I don't know a lot about Robert Greenleaf's personal life, but I do know that there are some spiritual instincts that have to inform his way of thinking. The servant leadership school has been been criticized, it's not a perfect way, but isn't it fascinating that there's a possibility in this world for the servant to become a leader? And I think as we join our friend Jesus in his life and his mission in the world, there is a profound possibility that servants can become leaders in marriage, in home, in politics, business, culture. Receive this good news of an alternative society that's real for the glory of God and for the sake of the world. Amen.